This morning we find ourselves in the little book of Nahum. Last night, Sarah Lauren and I were watching a, a television show, and it was the season finale of this show. And so everything is coming to a head, right? It's already tense. Everything's been built up. The storyline is moving you into this place of anxiety. What's going to go wrong? And in the midst of the plot line, this evil reveals itself, and it turns out it's going to be an evil that is going to threaten and destroy the entire world. And the heroines are trying to get there in time to save the world from this impending evil, right? And along the way, they keep getting stopped and stalled and everything else. And finally, there's this one scene where these, these heroines stop, and they have this whole, like, display of teenage drama that stops them and keeps them from the— on the other side of the door is this evil being that is supposed to destroy the world, and they're outside having a conversation about boyfriends. And I just—at that moment, I yelled at the TV, This is stupid. And Sarah looked at me and said, what are you talking about? I said, they're literally on the other side of the door from saving the world, and they've stopped to have a conversation with their boyfriend. One of them stops to break up with her boyfriend. Really? That is the dumbest thing that I have ever seen in my life. Oftentimes in our lives, when we look at the world around us and we see the impending evil and we see everything else that is out there, we can oftentimes feel overwhelmed and a lot of times we can stop like the psalmist stops and others stop and say, God, what's taking you so long? Are you on the other side of the door breaking up with a boyfriend? What is taking you so long? Why will you not step in and finally do something about this? The psalmists cry out, God, where are you? The evil prosper all around us. And we can end up in this place of desperation and hopelessness as we look at the world going down the drain and asking, God, when are you finally going to do something about it? Well, the people of Israel in Nahum's day were facing that and worse. And the book of Nahum is a declaration of God's vengeance, his vengeance against evil. And Nahum reminds the people of Israel and us that God does in fact see the injustice in us and the world around us, and he's not indifferent to it. Though it may not be on our timetable, God will keep his promise to do something about the evil around us. Nahum asserts that God will act and that there are none of God's enemies that are beyond his power. We're going to read just two verses as we discuss Nahum, and that's chapter 1, verses 12 and 13. Would you read with me? Thus says the Lord, though they are at full strength and many, they will be cut down and pass away. Though I have afflicted you, I will afflict you no more, and now I will break his yoke from off you, and I will burst your bonds apart. Would you pray with me? Father, this time is the opportunity that we have each and every week, to be reminded by your word of your power, of your majesty, of your glory, your sovereignty, of your grace, of your mercy, of the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So Lord, I pray that this morning you would draw near to us as we draw near to you in your word, that you would remind us that you sit on the throne 
that you are not indifferent to our sin or the sin of the world around us. And would you give us the strength and the reassurance based on what you have done that we can trust what you will do as we lean into your grace and your mercy. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen. The verses that we just read, verse 12 and verse 13, are a pretty good summary of Nahum's message. It's the only time in the three chapters of Nahum that Nahum uses the prophetic declaration, thus says the Lord. It's the only time necessarily that he is jumping in and speaking with that full authority that here comes the Lord, and it's a reminder that none of God's enemies are beyond God's power. The book of Nahum breaks down into really two sections, chapter 1 and then chapters 2 and 3. Chapter 1 is a poem about God in his glory, God as the sovereign king of the universe, God as the divine warrior who does and will step into the world, and when he does, he comes in all of that glory. And as we've seen in other prophets, the day of the Lord, when the Lord arrives, it is for salvation for his people, as he brings all of the weight of his sovereignty and his providence and his glory and his majesty and his power for the purposes of their salvation and their freedom, but it is horrible news to those who stand opposed to him. As he comes in such a way that even the earth itself quakes and shakes, and we see that in chapter 1. Chapters 2 and 3, however, are Nahum's poetic dramatization of the destruction and downfall of the city of Nineveh. If you look at chapter 1, verse 1, you see that Nahum says, this is an oracle concerning Nineveh. And what he says is that God is coming in his wrath to punish the evil of the Ninevites. Chapter 1, verse 2, the Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. God comes in his vengeance against evil. God will punish evil. As I heard one of our Sunday school teachers talking to the children this morning, the main idea of their lesson was God takes sin seriously. And he does. And Nahum's book is a declaration of just how seriously God takes our sin. But what is interesting is that God's vengeance is not like our vengeance. It's instead shaped by his perfection and his nature. Because in the very next verse, in verse 3, Nahum declares, the Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. That statement might feel tense up against verse 2, when it says, when vengeance shows up three different times, that God is coming in his vengeance and in his wrath, but God is slow to anger. That only seems like it doesn't fit when we don't fully understand the character of God and instead do what we always have the tendency to do, which is to project upon God the faults and failures of the people that we see in our lives. To project upon God human fallenness and traits. To think that God can't come in a measured, controlled vengeance and wrath just because you and I have never seen it. Because let's, say, let's be honest, most of the time when we think of vengeance or wrath, we think of somebody flying off the handle. 
You know where that phrase comes from? Flying off the handle is an old 18th century phrase that talks about someone who is using a hammer or an axe, and the axe head is loose. And as they're using it, the axe head comes flying off, which is in that moment dangerous. It's out of control. Something that had a good purpose, and when used in control and according to the purpose that it was intended for, it is safe and it is good. But when it is loose and when it comes flying off, it is destructive and dangerous. That is how we are off. We often are in our vengeance and wrath and anger, but that is never how God is in his vengeance and wrath and anger. God is slow to anger. So when he comes in his anger and in his vengeance, he does so in a weighed, controlled manner such that when God comes, there is never collateral damage. Chapter 1, verse 7, the Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. In the middle of this poem that talks about God coming in his glory and his wrath and his vengeance against sin, such that the earth quakes and whirlwinds and storms and dust are all over the place and the rivers are drying up and the mountains are quaking. Nevertheless, in the midst of that, those who take refuge in the Lord are safe because there's never collateral damage. Instead, in his goodness, the Lord will never leave evil unpunished no matter where it may exist and no matter how powerful it may appear. God will always judge his enemies. The question from Nahum and the question for us as we consider this book, though, is where might these enemies be? Who are these enemies that God might come against in his wrath? Where might they exist? First, they might exist internally. There are no enemies that have the ability to stand against God's power, and some of those enemies, let's be real honest, exist inside the people of God and in our own hearts. It might seem odd that we start with this look at internal enemies in a book that's about God's wrath against Israel's national external enemies. Right? This book is a book about Nineveh and their evils, and them getting their comeuppance. So why then would we start by looking inside ourselves? Because right smack dab in the middle of it, and in the verses that we read this morning, just earlier, 12 and 13, God says, though I have afflicted you, I will afflict you no more. God reminds his people that the only reason Assyria is there is because God raised Assyria up to punish his people. God reminds them that Assyria is his paddle. And he's been disciplining his children with Assyria at this point for decades and centuries. You see, we, just like the Israelites, are people who are very quick to see the flaws in everybody else. We're quick to see the problems out there, but are blinded by our own sin to see the problems in here. We talk all day long about what other people should be doing, how other people should be living, how other people should be serving, but very rarely are we willing to start by pointing the finger at ourselves. We need not dwell here because the truth of the matter is we've heard God's message against his people and many of the prophets that we've already studied and we'll see that he's not done with them yet 
that even though he's delivering them from Assyria, Babylon's coming, and God's not done, but we cannot blow past this point either. We cannot blow past the reality that when we think about God and his vengeance and his promise to do justice, his promise to do something about evil, we must start with ourselves. Because that's what the apostles say. Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 4, it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will become of those who do not obey the gospel of God? Paul, when he wrote to the Corinthians, said, what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? Brothers and sisters, what are our conversations like on Sundays, on Wednesdays, when we come into this place? Are they conversations flowing with praise to God for what he has done and what he is doing both in us and through us? Or are our conversations flowing with disappointment in our circumstances, disappointment in the downward spiral of our society, disappointment in the depravity of all those people out there? Do we spend more time bemoaning the problems of the world around us or waging war on the problems inside of us? By coming into this place in humility before the Lord and before one another to receive the grace that is freely offered again and again and again and again, no matter how bad it might be. When our conversations are flavored more by bemoaning the problems out there, is it any wonder that the number one reason why people within a three-mile radius of this building don't come to church is because their perception of us is that we're too judgmental. Maybe that wouldn't be the case if we were the type of the people who started with the finger pointed at our chest, confronting the problems in us before we confront the problems in others. What if we were the type of people who took Jesus' words seriously and dealt with a log in our own eye before we go after the fleck in somebody else's. But God isn't merely concerned with our internal enemies. God sees and will address our external enemies also. You see, at the time of Nahum's ministry, he says in verse 12 of chapter 1 that Nineveh is at full strength and many. So here's where we are at Nahum's day, when Nahum is prophesying to the people of Israel. This is after Micah, which we studied last week. And if you'll remember, Micah declares that Israel is going to fall, that God is going to bring Assyria in, Assyria is going to sweep through, and they do sweep through all of Israel, destroying all of their strongholds and everything that they trusted. And they came right up to the gates of Jerusalem, and just like God promised through the prophet of Micah, they get right to the front doors of Jerusalem and and. Hezekiah the king cries out to God in repentance and God acts on behalf of his people and destroys the army of Assyria with a plague in one night. And Assyria goes home with their tail between their legs. But nevertheless, not before they have destroyed everything around Jerusalem so that Jerusalem stands alone. 
the king of Assyria got back from that, and he actually wrote in his chronicles, he praises himself. You know how God, we always have the ability to turn our, our defeats into victories in some way, right? He gets to the gates of Jerusalem. He has this long record of all of the cities that he conquered as he swept through the Middle East at this particular point. But when he comes to Jerusalem, he says, I left Hezekiah, the king of Jerusalem, trapped inside of his city like a bird in a cage. And that's true. But he conquered everybody else, but not Jerusalem. Nahum is now writing after that point, when Assyria has regrown her strength, so much so that Assyria marched through the Middle East and down into Egypt and conquered Egypt. And now Jerusalem is alone against all of that. And God says they are at full strength and they are many. And yet, despite their status as a world power, the Lord says in chapter 1, verse 12, though they are at full strength and many, they will be cut down and passed away. And this will happen because God knows how evil they are. Chapter 1, verse 11, from you came one who plotted evil against the Lord. Chapter 2, verse 2, the Lord is restoring the majesty of Jacob as the majesty of Israel, for plunderers have plundered them and ruined their branches. God sees what Assyria did to his people. He knows it. He hurts with them. But he sees what they did beyond that. Chapter 3, verse 1, woe to that bloody city, all full of lies and plunder, no end to its prey. Chapter 3, verse 4, all of the count, and for all of the countless whorings and prostitute, of the prostitute, graceful and deadly charms who betrays nations with her, whorings and people with her charms, that's what God says is the reasoning behind his attacking them because of their wickedness. Because of this, the Lord is against them. Chapter 2, verse 13, and chapter 3, verse 5. And he is coming upon Nineveh in all of his might, and he will utterly humiliate her. Look at the image of chapter 3, verse 5 through 7. Behold, I'm against you, declares the Lord of hosts. I will lift up your skirts over your face. I will make nations look at your nakedness and kingdoms at your shame. I will throw filth at you and treat you with contempt and make you a spectacle. And all who look at you will shrink from you and say, Wasted is Nineveh. Who will grieve for her? Where shall I seek comforters for you? God says, I'm coming in my wrath and I'm going to deal with you. I am going to humiliate you just as you have humiliated the nations that you have defeated. I will treat you in kind. And the nations at the end of the book, chapter 3, verse 19, are actually going to applaud your destruction. But as dark as Nahum's oracle is against this wicked world power, the book of Nahum is a really beautiful message of hope for God's people. Because the object of Nahum's prophecy is Nineveh. But the audience of his prophecy are those people trapped like birds in a cage in the middle of Jerusalem. Standing alone against the most powerful nation that the world had ever seen to that point. Who's struggling with the question, God, where are you? Do you see how bad this is? They're helpless and they're hopeless. And so Nahum comes in with a declaration. God sees you. God sees them. God is good. And God is going to do something about it. Brothers and sisters, the truth of the matter is the world is a dark place. 
We can stand here and we can come in at any point and we can rattle off everything that is wrong in the world. Guess what? God doesn't need our help identifying it. He knows it better than we do. He understands how dark it is. He's not unaware of the wickedness that is in us or around us, and nor is he indifferent to it. And throughout history, the Lord has proven again and again and again that he is faithful to deal with the evils of the world and the wickedness that's around us in his time and not necessarily in ours. But the promise is that God will do something about it. He will not forsake us or abandon us or leave us, but he will come to our rescue. We have to believe and have faith in Nahum's declaration in chapter 1, verse 7. God is good. And we can look back at his faithfulness, back at his faithfulness to the people of Israel in Nahum's day. And in understanding what he did on their behalf, we can look forward to his promises for the future as well. Because when you get to Revelation chapter 18, what John sees and what John declares sounds a whole lot like Nahum as he prophesies against a different great city. The most evil of all cities, Babylon. As he declares in Revelation 18, 19, they threw dust on their heads as they wept and mourned, crying aloud, alas, alas, for the great city where all who had ships at sea grew rich by her wealth, for in a single hour she has been laid waste. Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets, for God has given judgment for you against her. God is not indifferent to our suffering. God is not indifferent to our sin. God is faithful to deal with our enemies no matter how overpowering they may be. And he is faithful to break their yoke and release us from our bonds. No matter what addiction has you under its thumb, no matter what habit you don't seem to break, no matter how broken that loved one's life may seem, no matter how overwhelmed the church might be, no matter how dark it might get, no matter how scary that disease may be, there is nothing that is more powerful than God. And God in His goodness is not indifferent to your situation. He may not work in your time, but He is working all things together for the good of those whose faith and trust is in Him. And the question is, why would He wait why does God linger? Why does God not deal with our external enemies right now? Why is God holding back? Could it possibly be that God sees something so much bigger than we see it? I have to stop and I have to praise God that he hasn't done something sooner, done something on my timetable, because let's be real honest, if God did things in my time, there'd be a whole lot more people spending eternity in hell than will be because God acts in his time. Because I'm not slow to anger. He is. And he's proven it again and again. You see, God's not just concerned about our internal enemies. He's not just concerned about our external enemies. God is concerned about our eternal enemies as well. When the Lord sent Jonah to Nineveh with a message of judgment, the people turned from their sin. They repented and they cried out to the Lord for mercy. And God gave them mercy. 
And God ends the book of Jonah with this question, should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left? God sees the same people that you and I see as enemies, as broken, as beyond repair. God sees an eternal soul and a person that is stamped with his image and he values them. And in his grace and in his mercy, he is slow to anger that more might be saved. Nahum's prophecy against the nation of Nineveh is eternally significant because if we look at it, what we ultimately see, as he declares the, the, the devastation of Nineveh, what we ultimately see is what every single person in this room deserves. But God spares us that. And he did so at the cost of himself, of his son. God's wrath is not only what we deserve. God's wrath is what Christ took upon himself that we might be spared what we deserve. You see, Jesus will one day deal with the external enemies of the world. Because he has already dealt with the eternal enemies of our sin and death. You see, we don't just have to look back to what God did through Nahum and for his people in Israel. We can look back to the fact that God came in all of his vengeance and all of his wrath and poured it out on his son Jesus Christ as he hung on the cross. And Jesus Christ drank the cup of God's wrath for your sin and my sin that we might be spared. If we, like old Nineveh, turn from our wicked ways, turn from our self-dependency and self-justification, and trust in Christ, in His work on our behalf, when we look at the world around us and see their sin and their, in their waywardness, we will inevitably see them as a problem. But brothers and sisters, our biggest problem isn't nations. It isn't cultural warriors. It's the sin in my own self. And it's the death that I deserve. It's the sin in the hearts of other people and the death and the eternal damnation that they deserve. But praise God, He doesn't leave us to that fate, but has done everything that is necessary that we might be spared. The Gospel of Nahum is that the Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble, and He knows those who take refuge in Him. Is that you? Is that me? If so, then that should be our message to the world around us. Let God bring the vengeance and the wrath and the damnation in His time. As for me, my declaration is going to be Nahum 1.7. The Lord is good and a stronghold 
for all who take refuge in Him. He knows you. And He invites you. Because the truth of the matter is, there's nothing that I deserve except what Nineveh got. So last week I read an article about a young woman, early 20s, who's a TikTok influencer. Good for her. And she went viral because she posted a video about why she broke the chain of the pay it forward at the local Starbucks. You ever been in one of those? I worked at Starbucks, y'all, many of y'all know. I've worked at Starbucks for eight years, so I have seen many of them. And I've always applauded the person who breaks the chain. Not because it's a convenience for me or anything else, but because every single person who receives this gift and then says, oh, by the way, just let's pass it on back, is the person who's refusing the gift. We live in this culture that says, I'm, I, I can't just be loved and blessed. I've got to push it forward. But she had an entirely different reason for why she broke the chain. It wasn't because she accepted the gift. It's because she believed she deserved it. And she blatantly declares, I deserve for somebody to have bought my $6 coffee. What we deserve, brothers and sisters, is alienation and separation from God forever. And if left to ourselves, we would never turn to God. And we would never simply receive God's grace. See, we are living in the church so often in this place where we're paying it forward. Instead of simply receiving God's grace, we show up at church on Sunday morning always with some type of contribution because we're trapped in that old, broken way of thinking that still says, I've got to earn this somehow. And God says, no. Everything is done for you. If we want to be a people that are able to proclaim the Lord is good, we have to stop and let the Lord be good to us. And in receiving His goodness and love, then, then we'll be able to give goodness and love. Jesus says in John 14, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. But we're a generation of people that puts it on the backside. I got to keep his commandments to prove I love him. Jesus' emphasis is on the front half. Love me. But God, I got to love me. But God, there's this, love me. And all of that will take care of itself. And the only way that we can love God is when we receive God's love. Let God deal with everything out there. And come here to sit in the presence 
of a good and loving God. And receive that love and love like you've been loved. Because there is no enemy that is more powerful than God. He will deal with it in his time. What we're called to be is people of faith who know what God has done in Israel and in Jesus and trust him with everything else. Would you trust in God today?